For April 15th, 2019, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 563. The Demon in You, The Demon in Me. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we're hanging out together and talking about the things we love. Very often, the movies we love. And this week, we are talking about the number one movie in America. Are you excited, guys? The number one, actually, honestly, by sales, the number one movie in America is probably still Avengers Endgame, which I'm sure... Is outselling still in pre-sales, whatever, uh, whatever direct they're pumping out in the box office. Now, um, no, uh, guys, were you aware that someone remade Hellboy at, with the sheriff from Stranger Things in it? Because I sure as heck wasn't. I mean, it's sort of my job to stay up to speed on these things. I mean, I, I think we knew it was happening. I think there was the question was whether we were going to do anything about it. And, and, and I will say right now, before anybody gets too distracted, uh, if you did not if you have never seen a Hellboy movie, keep listening, because it is not going to be required reading in order to understand the rest of the podcast. It's so, not complicated. No. Yeah. Well, yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Did you know that Hellboy was coming back, Mark? Yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah, I'd, yeah. Seen a, I'd seen a trailer. Um, I celebrate David Barber's entire catalog, namely Stranger Things, uh, Stranger Things seasons one and season two. Um, I was like, uh, had like the tiniest bit, and I, I really enjoyed the original Hellboy as well. I think he's a great character, uh, and had like tiniest bit of excitement for it, and then saw, hey, it bombed. So it's like the original one is on Netflix and free to watch in the, ple- in the pleasure and comfort of your own home. So hey, why don't we talk about that instead? Yeah, it, it was uh, it was indeed pleasurable and comfortable because I watched it on a couch, um, much more comfortable than any movie theater and and much less expensive as well. So uh, yeah, that's what we did. We didn't watch the uh, the the this remake of Hellboy. We went back and watched the what two thousand. 2004 Four? Yeah. 15 years ago yeah wow with uh and and an early film i i guess i should say an early american film of guillermo del toro early early in his career um making spooky cinema uh yeah. and uh, there is a fish related tie-in um to you know uh in Guillermo del Toro's recent work and uh and in Hellboy. So uh we watched the we watched it on Netflix and you too can watch the 2004 Hellboy on Netflix. And you know what? You should. We recommend it as a uh as a fun way to pass um fun way to pass an evening uh on on the couch at home. So uh so let's let's just uh let's just go around the horn. I don't know, Pete, did you did you enjoy revisiting Hellboy? I mean, uh was it was it fun and a a, a good experience from you or was it like uh was it like being being attacked by uh godlike creatures from another dimension? <laughs> I really like the 2004 Hellboy and I kind of feel like there are certain things that the 2004 Hellboy does that are still worth talking about and that are notable among movies of this sort of genre. It's important to note that the overall plot of the movie and kind of what happens from an action and adventure standpoint is not that thing (laughs) that it does. Uh, It's more like you're sort of panning for gold in this movie and you find some really nice nuggets from a cast that's just really, really talented and a director, of course. It's it's one of those movies that if you bought low, your portfolio is looking great in terms of saying, like, this is a movie that in the future I'm going to look back and have liked. Uh, so, no, I like I enjoyed watching it and it gave me a lot of thoughts and a lot of feelings. Definitely provoked a lot of feelings for me. So, I don't know, Mark, what did you think? Did you enjoy watching the 2004 Hellboy? Yeah, I appreciated the camp and silliness of it more than mm. anything else, right? Um, in particular, the villains who <laughs> this like motley crew of Rasputin <laughs> and a couple Nazis because yes. why not, right? right and, sure. and one of the one of the Nazis is this like sadomasochistic gas mask wearing knife blade dude who was like kind of reminds me of v from v for vendetta but like is evil it's um, funny that you described him without using the word steampunk or cyborg <laughs> oh yeah also that 
yeah. it's it's like it's delightful it's it's titillating um it's all these good things um that you you want from a- entertainment that doesn't take itself too seriously okay let's let's delve into the nuggets because pete i'm completely with you that like i'm completely with you that plot wise the uh uh the movie is nothing particularly groundbreaking um the the characters are great they're well acted and there are you know it's it is also really really good to look at it's like uh it's the unique visual style of Guillermo del Toro and even though it does like the last I don't know 40 minutes is a lot of CGI punching which which I'm really fatigued by I guess it really was early in the canon of CGI punching and so probably you know has to be looked at in the context of its time rather than you know judged by the standards of the the Marvel Cinematic Universe or something like that Um, so uh, we're where is a where is a nugget, Pete? Like, let's just pick one nugget and uh, hold it up to the light, watch it gleam, and examine it uh, as though it were a reliquary from uh, for a you know saint's uh, uh, body part, <laughs> you know that still contains mystical powers many many millennia later. So I'll say this: there are a lot of movies that claim to star an antihero, and there are a lot of attempts. In comic book related movies and comic books in general and TV shows and various sorts of entertainment media to create uh, the idea of like an antihero. And uh, I feel like the Hellboy in the movie, Ron Perlman as Hellboy in the first Hellboy movie is a really it feels like a really grounded, meaningful, but at the same time kind of adequately fantastical and kind of unreal articulation of what an antihero could be and might be and maybe even should be. I think that Hellboy, he might he might be my favorite movie antihero. Ron Perlman as Hellboy. Uh, that, that's a bit of a stretch because, you know, there's a lot of really good ones and you can kind of and then you get into arguments of like, well, is John McClane an antihero? Is the Terminator and Terminator 2 an antihero? Um, but I think that that there's something special about the emotional landscape of Ron Perlman's Hellboy and I guess Guillermo del Toro's Hellboy as well. And of course the Hellboy of everybody who wrote it and the sort of collaborative Hellboy that emerges from this project, right? That to me really speaks to what antiheroes are doing and why uh, that kind of both makes sense and also kind of nourishes the soul a little bit. So I mean, that would be my anti- Antiheroes are there, Pete, to like explain why life is hard for white men, right? Like, uh, <laughs> Like Tony Soprano or Walter White or or House, you know, House. Don't forget, like his his life is hard. You know, I I'd say that there's a couple of different approaches to what an antihero could be. It's it's not a particularly um, it's it's a it's a word that doesn't have a particularly concise or even uniform definition. But the help the the antihero that's being presented here is somebody who has moral problems. That that can't act in a fully moral way because of some aspect of their personality or their makeup uh, that kind of induces them to not want to. Right. And so they not only can't not only can they are they incapable of acting in the sort of morally coherent kind of what you might refer to as like lawful good or sort of white hat cowboy kind of way, but they actively choose not to act in that way. But in the panoply of choices that they make, they still end up making choices that are heroic choices in the the kind of new early modern sense of heroic and not the kind of ancient sense of heroic in the sense that like they save the day right that that uh, that, in, that one idea of it like the tony soprano idea of the anti-hero is that it's a protagonist that's almost like a sort of really retro uh kind of dramatic like like old school drama version of an anti-hero where they're a protagonist who's evil and uh, and yeah, you might root for them and they might try to accomplish good things uh, in their life, but they ultimately fail at being good. And uh, that's the sort of Tony Soprano, Walter White. Yeah, all that it stuff. is true. It's I'm I'm I wasn't a fair question to ask. Oh, no, no. It's provocative. Those, those sh- it's that's why I do it, Pete. It's provocative <laughs> like Tony Soprano or Walter White or House. 
don't forget about house. <laughs> the, uh, you know, that, that like, yeah, it's making a sociopath your main character is not the same as, as having an, an anti-hero. And it's interesting that your, your definition kind of centers around motivation and not disposition, right? Oh, interesting. Yeah, because like you could say that, that like, cause, uh, uh, John McClane is a police officer, you know, mm-hmm. and he doesn't, um, he doesn't go looking for trouble, but when trouble finds him, he acts in a way that is, you know, that comports with his job to protect and serve or to, you know what I mean? To like enforce law. Right. And like, he has a, uh, sort of a flamboyant style. He has, you know, uh, maybe a disposition that's not, um, you know, that's not sort of white knight. That's not lawful good. You know, that's not like paladin esque. You know, but the his uh, motivations are heroic motivations in that, like he wants to do the right thing, either because it is the right thing, or because he is the guy who does the right thing, or because it's his job, or you know, for for whatever you know kinds of whatever kinds of. Uh, ethics or virtues you think John McClane subscribes to, but he's trying to do the right thing. Um, uh, Hellboy is not necessarily trying to do uh, to do the right thing, or doesn't have a set of motivations, you know, that comports with what the society's motivations are. Uh, who who uses him, which is kind of an interesting. Right. Can, can we break that down a little bit, right? Because Hellboy is a demon, right? right? But in what ways is he really demonic? So Hellspawn. So Hellboy is a demon because he has a if he were not to intervene in a conscious way in his own choices. If if if, let's say this Hellboy uh, every in Hellboy, there is a notion of telos of purpose in people's lives wherein People like events and things might sort of carry forward to a natural conclusion that the way that you were born or what you sort of become uh, through the sort of moral luck of your life might eventually carry you through to some sort of natural conclusion. Nazis are Nazis. You know, Americans are Americans. There are these sort of grand conflicts. And and what Hellboy invites into this is a notion that your own uh, kind of desires Right. What you what you want and not just in a sort of a grand moral way, but even down to sort of a hedonistic sense that, that the sort of surface level desires for what you want uh, have an interaction with your kind of uh, inborn telos that can potentially bring you to a position where you act in a way that is in contradiction to the way that you were destined or born to act that like that, like if you give people the things that they like that they'll respond to the things that they like. They'll seek out the things that they want. Baby, they'll mirror baby, back the things. Baby yeah. Ruth candy bars. Yes. This is a movie in which a candy bar makes somebody a good guy, right? <laughs> which is, I think, fascinating. Uh, this is idea that like, oh, well, how do you how do you make the demon into a good person? You positively reinforce the kind of behavior that you want to see by connecting it to food. And then over time, what you're going to end up with somebody who is terribly morally conflicted because they don't understand why they can be conditioned to act the way they are and attempt to resolve some sort of identity that reconciles what they're feeling, which is a combination of like indoctrination, unmet physical and emotional need. Right. And a sort of like conflict with whatever it is that their own physiology is telling them that they need to do, uh, which in this movie is also manifest in like a very dysfunctional relationship with sex and sexuality, which should be very easily identifiable to adolescent boys. Right? Like, like uh, oh, those, those you're saying the, the Pete, his horns are not really horns. They're a metaphor for something else. <laughs> I think, you know, you say that, Mark, and it's funny because it's so obviously true. You having said it, that it's amazing that I wasn't thinking about it during the course of the movie. <laughs> and that his, his, sort of yeah. his, his voluntary castration at the end of the his voluntary symbolic castration at the end of the film is, uh, you know, a, a crucial moment for him. I think so, because I think Hellboy's a movie that's about uh, I mean, we've already we've been talking about what makes Hellboy and antihero, what makes Hellboy kind of in this sort of weird relationship with with bad moral choice, right? Uh, or choosing to do things on grounds other than moral grounds. But talking about the movie more generally, this particular movie is a movie where all the characters have some form of kind of emotional dysregulation. 
uh, where there's something that they can't do with regards to either attachment or kind of self-actualization or or there's or like love or happiness. Right. There's just something that they can't experience or let go of that they're constantly struggling with. And and it's sort of not about fixing those things, but about kind of like how people I mean, the way Hellboy puts it is find a way to live with it. Right. Which is that Hellboy is is the product the way that Hellboy in 2004 would not work today is that Hellboy's moral landscape is the product of a fundamentally unjust cosmology that is not interested in the moral good. And his ultimate solution is to find a way to live with this conflict. His idea is not like, oh, I need to go kill Cthulhu so that the world can be result can be resolved to the good. Right. I'm not going to find a permanent solution to my problem. I'm going to find a way to live with it. And this involves kind of like finding somebody to love who loves me, even it's for screwed up reasons, right? And sort of like, and even if you have to castrate yourself in order to prevent yourself from being disruptive, because you know that you've been preconditioned to have like kind of uh, dysfunctional or toxic sexuality, right? And so like, uh, Hellboy knows that were he to really follow his desires to their fullest, it would hurt everybody that he cares about and it tortures him. So he casts, he like, he beats himself up and he kind of deprives himself Right. In order to I'm, I'm going on. Yeah. I'm going. This on really is a Catholic movie, by the way. Yeah, it is very Catholic. Well, there, movie. I mean, but, sure. But there, that's it's very interesting. But like you're, you're drawing a triangle, Pete, that I think is is interesting. Right. And it's it's roughly sort of nature, nurture and your own thoughts and like self-image or self or ego. Right. Uh, I guess I guess it's like id is nature. Uh, Super ego is nurture and. Um, ego is your own kind of your own thoughts about yourself, your own kind of uh, moment by moment sort of shifting uh, outline of what what you think what you think you are. And so like nature sort of acts on you and what you've called sort of conditioning acts on you. Right. You I the, I act without understanding why I act. But I, I do these things because I've been conditioned to do them. And you don't understand uh, that you've been um, you've been conditioned to do it or or like, you know, the the Labrador retriever doesn't understand that he or she has been bred to love swimming. Right. But but my goodness, that dog is happy jumping in the pool, you know, and in, in the movie, this is manifest when like the guy brings Hellboy a giant pa- uh, pan of pancakes and Hellboy is like, why are you doing this? <laughs> right. Like he knows he's going to eat the pancakes. He knows what the routine is, but he's like, why? What is what is the he doesn't understand. Right. He doesn't yeah. understand. Sorry. Continue. Continue. Yeah, exactly. It's it's uh <laughs> why it's you know to paraphrase from the avengers like uh i'm gonna ask you a question where are the pancakes i'm gonna ask you a question what are the pancakes i'm gonna ask you a question why are the pancakes <laughs> oh <laughs> and that's like uh that's the that goes into uh that goes into the sort of the material world of of nature a kind of biological substrate or sort of uh, a character based or cosmological substrate the uh um the nurture the who are the pancakes the who question like the behavior that kind of forms personality and then the the individual sense of like wait what is going on here why are why are the pancakes why do i desire pancakes i had some tasty pancakes today guys and and why are the pancakes is is a question that i think we could all spend a little time thinking about (laughs) Definitely. And those pancakes look delicious. Like, so again, if you haven't seen the Hellboy movie, the movie has its sort of Luke Skywalker figure. It's sort of like audience surrogate who is a young FBI agent who is assigned to care for this demon who has been sort of recruited to the side of quote unquote good, but who still has a rather problematic way of doing things and who at some point is probably destined to destroy the world, but has not decided to do it yet. (laughs) (laughs) And in the meantime, will work for the federal government and wear a duster with a soul patch and mutton shops because he has decided that instead of being evil he's going to be awesome <laughs> and, and so and kind a lot of, of a sumo wrestlers top knot kind of thing yes right? he's he, there's all this stuff about this hellboy character where he's he's acting out cultural aesthetics about kind of the restraint of the impulse to violence right the sort of like the contextualization of the impulse to violence finding some sort of reason why he wants to hurt things that can make him proud of himself 
Uh, you know, like, oh, he's like Lorenzo Lamas from Renegade, <laughs> right? Like, that's what I kept thinking when watching this is like, oh, it's it's like Mac from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, but kind of more serious and more adolescent, where it's like, I've got this cool duster. I'm like this cool guy, right? It means I'm not this horrible abomination. And yeah, the top knot shows like, oh, I've been, you know, I've been reading uh, I've been reading history, history books about the samurai. I've been reading Shogun and I decided that like, this is the way that I'm going to handle myself. Um, yeah, the top knot is really interesting. It's all really interesting, but, but he's, he, people give him food and his friends give him food. And that's one of the ways in which they maintain the, the belief that they're his friends. And there's other ways that they do it and they kind of earn it over time. But, uh, but the main interaction is they keep Hellboy locked in a vault and they bring him like deli meats and candy bars and pancakes. <laughs> and, and he sees this as sort of like a familial relationship, similar to an adolescent kid who has to stay and eat dinner with his family, even though he wants to be out causing a ruckus. All right. And but they can't let him out because if people see him, then they're going to know he's real. And that's a whole problem. This is a digression. This is neither here nor there. But like the difference between sort of industrialized uh, mass produced food and, you know, uh, homemade single one off produced food is uh, that mass produced food looks good in quantity and homemade food looks bad in quantity. Right. Uh Because like, yeah, contrary, uh, you know, contrary your suggestion that those pancakes look good i thought the pancakes looked kind of gross i thought it looked like a a trough of slop to me and a lot of that but you know a stack a whole bookcase full of baby ruth candy bars that would be a thing of beauty right and that like that added aspect i guess of packaging or homogeneity or um I, I don't know. Maybe they're just sort of different thought categories, mass-produced food and, and yeah. uh, bespoke uh, artisanal food. Like, Let, yeah. yeah. We can't let go of this because my favorite scene in the movie involves this. And I want to get back and ask Mark about Catholicism, but we got to talk about cookies first. Um, because my, my favorite scene in the movie is what Hellboy – is Hellboy is stalking his crush because Hellboy doesn't act in a moral way because he's an antihero, right? And he's like, there's this girl that he grew up with because she also, she has these sort of uh, Drew Barrymore fire starter uh, powers and it's played by Selma Blair. And she, when she gets distressed, she explodes in fire and kills everyone around her. So she was also in the same sort of holding facility slash secret agency that Hellboy was in as a child. And she's since tried to move on and rejoin society by going to a mental institution and getting therapy and help. Uh, and Hellboy misses her and has this sort of erotic feelings for her as well as this sort of like attachment problems where he's like, she left me. Everybody leaves me, right? Like I need her back and not really seriously considering what she wants, which is because he's an adolescent and and a bad person um, in certain ways. And so when she goes out on a date with his coworker, which is all kinds of problematic, uh, he follows her and is like leaping through the rooftops, Dark Knight Returns style, wearing a duster, stalking his ex, right, his crush or whatever. And this little boy is like, oh, my God, it's Hellboy. I've seen pictures you know, of you on the news. You're real. And he's like, yeah, I'm on a mission. Right. And there's that wonderful mirroring where he's looking down off the roof and there is the pairing of uh Selma Blair and the FBI agent guy, whoever he is. And uh, and on the roof, uh, it's Rupert Evans, I guess. And on the roof, there's the pairing of Hellboy and then the little boy. And so and so it's a it's a it's a scene of a, of a little boy looking at adults and Hellboy feeling like a little boy looking at adults. How do I move into that sphere? And the little boy, it's it's good because Hellboy feels alone. But Hellboy is actually in a relationship in this moment with this little boy, and they have this commonality and this kind of uh, and and Hellboy and the little boy, who also is incapable of fully relating to Hellboy because Hellboy is a giant demon, uh, decides that he's going to do the only gesture of affection, the supreme gesture of affection he could possibly think of, which is go downstairs and get his mother's homemade cookies and bring them up and share them with Hellboy along with a delicious looking tall glass of milk. And so like Hellboy like eats the homemade cookie, the first one, and he's like, oh, you're going to eat that? And he, and, the, and he eats the second homemade cookie, and the boy is like so happy to share his cookies with Hellboy because he doesn't know how else to connect with him, and he's sort of like is excited about him because he's seen him on the news right um i would say yeah matt those pancakes look good to me because they look like real pancakes yeah and those cookies look yeah yeah. and those cookies are look good to me because they look like real cookies and then there's this idea that there's something about this exchange of food that's nourishing and i think the baby ruth is being included partially as sort of an old-fashioned candy 
it's not a Snickers, but but I think I think they, I think you're right in that like the stack of baby Ruths would be more appealing, and the idea of like giving someone a baby Ruth to give to him is kind of an artificial simulacrum of what you really need to do to make friends with Hellboy, mm. which is to either give him cookies or give him his father's rosary. Uh, so hey, before we move on to the Catholicism, let's kind of tie up the Hellboy character arc here, right? Because um, it's explicit in the movie that like the the old caretaker uh, surrogate father figure um, says to the new FBI agent, like, you know, you have to help Hellboy become a man. Right? He doesn't say <laughs> Hellboy yeah. becomes a hell man, but that's, yeah. you know, the, 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 it is implied strongly. Um, does he become a man by the end of this movie? Has he progressed from the childish uh, attitude like we described about the rooftop into something more mature? And if so, how? I think you have to say that he has. Um, it's tricky because the epilogue tells us that he has, but the epilogues of these things often tell us something other than what has really happened. Um, has Hellboy become a man? I would say that, Matt, I want to hear what you have to say about this too, but I would say that Hellboy has become capable of being in a relationship, um, which he wasn't at the beginning of the movie. He's capable of having a sort of a heteronormative relationship with a woman, um, and, and which is like, the the ending of the movie is not the best part, <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. Uh, but because it doesn't really make a ton of sense in certain ways. But but what Hellboy has done is he is he has gone from a situation in which he is conflicted about who he is to a situation in like Matt has described this triangle between nature, nurture and choice. Right. Like sort of, you know, what he refers to as as id, superego and ego and and Hellboy by the end has realized that has has established the primacy of choice among these three things. Uh, and you might even say that being a baby is about na- is about your your nature. Being a child is about your nurture because your your parent is your manifestation of your need and you're you're living in the context of whether you please your parent or not. And then being an adult, you know, is about choice and about about are you really taking responsibility for who you are and what you're going to do with your life? And have you also come to terms with the fact that it's not going to be perfect and you're going to have to learn to live with it? And in that's that's what makes him capable, I think, of having the relationship with the with the woman, because he's able to recognize that, like, it's not he's not going to be able to change his face to make himself different from what he is. And she's not going to be able to change her brain to make her different from who she is. But he's realized that they can choose to be together and that their particular sort of mental problems actually dovetail nicely into a possible relationship and that they can kind of like leave the way in which their, you know, parental institutional figures have dictated how they ought to live, to live in the way that they choose. Um and so in that way, he's a man and he's also a man in the sense that he's confronted kind of mortality in the cosmic sense and come away with it from the idea of like, OK, I kind of know eventually what's going to happen to me, but I'm choosing to live this way right now for the time being. Uh, in the case, the case of Hellboy, it's not necessarily that he's going to die. It's that eventually he's going to destroy the universe uh, or the world or whatever. And, and he's not going to do it now. Uh, but that's kind of an adult choice to say, like, well, at some point I'm going to die. What am I going to do with the time that I have? As opposed to like, oh, my God, I'm going to die. I'm going to paint my eyelashes black and and uh, and, you know, cover myself in, in uh, fishnet so that I can't get out the door in the morning because I trip over this giant sack of fishnet that's over my head. Um, I'm going to, like, express my agony at the unfairness of my existence to the universe with this predisposition of a child towards an adult and the idea that somebody is going to come and fix it. Uh, no, they're not. Right. Being an adult is like, no, they're not going to fix it. You have to kind of take responsibility for it yourself. But that's how I would say he sort of becomes a man. But Matt, what do you think? Yeah, I think choice. I think your emphasis and, and kind of concentration on choices is exactly right. And it's I I I'd go into it as as sort of saying like in his early life, Hellboy is kept in the cage. Uh mm-hmm. And and he becomes a man. We all become we all become uh, adults in the sense that we internalize the cage, <laughs> you know. <Yeah. laughs> that you sort of start to uh, uh, that you start to um, you know behave uh, behave in the way that you're in the ways that your parents you you elect you elect autonomously to be, to behave in the ways that your your parents would instruct you uh, to behave when when you're growing up and to what, to, what a melt notion of obedience right, right? And sort of look <laughs> look yeah exactly right uh well i mean you know hellboy is all about the hell within him for within him hell he brings 
I'd link it to the rosary that the John Hurt character wears because the John Hurt wear- character wears the rosary, you know, around his neck. It sort of encircles, it restricts. It's like, uh, um, it's not just decorative. There's this aspect of it that's kind of like a leash or a collar or something like that. The co- the the divine collar of the rosary. And then, um, you know, when uh, young young Mick F. B. Eisen throws it to him, he catches it in his hand and it burns him in his hand. It burns him because he's a he's demon but uh it it becomes kind of a mark on his person you know rather than being an an external constraint or rather than being you know rather it's funny i guess he grows up in the sense that he goes from being catholic to being protestant right because <laughs> whoa unpack that um because let's do this let's have the religion conversation because this uh, is, oh, it's so fascinating catholicism is distinguished by its sacramental theology right so catholicism is all about signs and symbols of things and signs and symbols good art good music good the special uh liturgical signs and symbols that are called sacraments are are good and that like we use these things we use a kind of metaphorical language or a kind of theatrical language of enactment um and uh uh and art and you know physical and and sensory information right as a as a sort of gateway into spiritual truths this is not true of of protestant theology especially the kind of more doctrinaire not contemporary protestantism uh but a, a more doctrinaire um you know uh uh martin luther type of thing or the the american kind of puritanical protestantism which was really about stripping a lot of that stuff away bare white walls in the church no rosaries no signs and symbols really about more a kind of direct contemplative communication and had a theology of uh predestination right and the predestination of the elect the people who are um the people who are uh, who are what uh, de- destined to to go to heaven. So sorry, I, ju- I was just kind of linking it up in the in 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 my head with, with the conversation that we've had before. So like, actually, take those as the two poles of the sort of the the uh, the nature and the nurture. Actually, the nature being the the Protestant way, the predestination, um, the idea of me, you know, blindsiding Pete on this podcast and saying, Pete, does your life have a purpose? That is, you know, <laughs> that is a puritanical idea, and that belongs to the like you're a demon, you're destined for this. The uh, nurture side is the rosary side, is the Catholicism side. And he actually, he actually, to just revise what I said before, he finds kind of a middle way um, that like, and I think the, the mark of the, the uh, crucifix part of the rosary on his hand um, is a pretty good symbol of this combining a kind of external and internal thing, combining a, a piece of jewelry and a mark on your body, a, a, an aspect of who you are, um, mm-hmm. who you are materially and who you are morally. Uh, and, and that like kind of in, in marrying these two things, he kind of thematically transcends the, he, he synthesizes the dichotomy um, that, that we're talking about. I would even add that to me, it seemed like once he went, as he was, there's a long moment where he contemplates where Hellboy, those of us who've been lost a little bit, we're in the final confrontation where Hellboy is going to either bring the evil Cthulhu to Earth to destroy the Earth or decide not to, which is one of the weak points of the movie, because it's like, hey, how about that thing that you were going to do that's going to destroy the world? You just don't do it. Great. Awesome. Um, But he's looking at this cross that it burns on his hand. The rosary burns on his hand. And I kind of feel like at a moment, the cross looks something like the sword icon of his uh, his badge, like the badge of the agency. Uh, I don't know whether I'm importing that or whether it's something that's in the shape of the cross that makes the cross also look like a sword. And the reason that this resonates for me is that we then go into one of the other big visual, like very specific visual religious uh, symbols of the movie, which is St. George and the Dragon, right? Uh, now, is it St. George? Is it St. George and the Dragon or is it Michael and the I, – I, okay. So it's, in, it's Michael slaying um, Satan because there's a right. statue of it in their headquarters. But the statue of Michael slaying Satan to me 
looks iconographically like the classic statues and depictions of St. George and the Dragon. It's all the same idea. Sure. Yeah. Uh, right, right. This is the idea that, like, there is this sort of holy defender, uh, who this holy warrior defender force of nature, kind of like above human level thing that needs to kill the monster. And that this is a sort of way in which the sort of glory of creation is made real. And it's it's a saint, right? Like the per, the the saint, the person who kills the dragon is a saint, right? The the person who you know drives Satan from heaven is an angel, uh, right? And uh, and so after the moment where Hellboy is contemplating the burned cross on his hand, not crucifix, but cross. He has, and that's Matt. I think I'm connecting with what you're saying here because the rosary has a crucifix on it, right? Or generally speaking, yeah, generally. I guess it's not. I guess it's not a, a hard requirement. Yeah, yeah. But so the difference being a crucifix has an icon of a picture, you know, an image of Christ on it, whereas a cross does not necessarily. Uh, and that's sort of a division between a Catholic way of looking at it, where, of course, as Matt has said, symbols are really important and sacred and, and stuff like that, whereas Protestant way where it's like symbols are artifice and artifice gets in the way of truth. And uh, and what we really want is kind of a personal experience of truth. But he's contemplating the cross, which might also be a sword. And then he becomes the angel, the Michael Archangel fighting Satan slash St. George fighting the dragon. And there's almost like a tableau kind of thing where he's up in the air looking down at the giant squid monster that he's trying to kill, the giant, giant Cthulhu tentacle monster Eltritch Horror that is just hatched out of Rasputin's brain. Uh, this movie's so great. <laughs> and, he's, and, he's, <laughs> and then there's this moment where it's like, oh, okay. It's very similar to the moment in like the Iron Giant where he says he's Superman, right? Where it's like, oh, the creature that kind of, the creature has finally you know, mastered their own concept of identity, right? Like, like I've gone from being a devil to being an angel. Uh, and, and I, that is within my, within my, the scope of my experience, if not my own personal power to do this. Um, and so it like, like he, it's notable that Hellboy makes the sort of holy bullets that he uses himself. There's something about this Hellboy character that aspires to being this sort of holy warrior. But at the same time, there's this deep self-loathing and sense that no one will ever love him. Right. And, uh, and that uh, he's totally alone and he's this prisoner. Um, and, and and in that moment where he's contemplating the rosary, which, as Matt said, was like a burden for his father. He then, like, incorporates it into himself as this sort of sort of a mega duster, sort of like larger, the sort of uh, Lorenzo Lamas writ large, uh, the kind of Lorenzo Lamas you would weave a tapestry of and hang it in the castle. Right. Um, <laughs> I don't know, Mark, how does you brought up the Catholicism to start out with? What yeah, I wanted to talk about one thing, really one thing in particular, which is the the reliquaries of the saints. Because it's mm. so freaking weird if you're not familiar with it, and I think it does inform our conversation of the movie. Um, okay, so in the movie, they're specifically referenced, like, I think Hellboy's artisanally made bullets, as well as something that he hands to Abe Fishman, um, which is that, like, these things contain relics of the saints. Yes. Well, specifically, what we're talking about is this real thing in Catholicism, where... Um, uh, the 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 tradition the faith holds that certain body parts of certain saints are more or less imbued with magical powers. I, I wish I were making this up because it's so freaking weird and macabre, but it's true, right? And this is also tied into um, stories you hear about saints who um, let's say like I, I've been to a church in Europe where like you just see like this skeleton that's in a in a cabinet that's dressed up with some finery robes and things like that, because uh, that's a sacred thing. And there's also stories of saints who are quote unquote incorruptible, whose bodies don't decompose. I don't really know how that works um, or, or what proof there is of that. Uh, but broadly speaking, right. It's this like hocus pocus type of Catholicism that is um, really connected with this body horror um, of taking like fingernails, fingers, bones, um, and then, like, transporting them around to churches around Europe or, like, carrying on your person because it gives you magical powers or to, to fight evil, to ward off evil and things like that. Um, it is so bizarre and fantastical. It's no wonder that Guillermo del Toro tapped on this tradition for the movie because it fits in really well. Um, I think it goes back to what we we're talking about with uh, the, the the saints and St. George, right, and, like, you know, being able to tap into – this broader tradition and uh, transcending yourself in order to fight evil. So that's like kind of my uh, brain dump there of all this like fantastical, uh, uh, gory Catholicism stuff. So like, be, like take it from there. 
Oh, well, I mean, the movie also has the Spear of Longinus in it, which it then doesn't. Chekhov's Spear of Longinus does not get used hmm. in this movie. Hmm. Uh, the Spear of Longinus is a relic that people might be familiar from if they've watched Neon Genesis Evangelion. But, or played uh, Wolfenstein's Spear of Destiny. Yeah, yes, yes. I think the spear, spears in general are more heavily featured in Hellboy 2, The Golden Army, I believe. But uh, but so, so this is what I was thinking when I was watching the part with the relics of the saints, because this is not the only movie from this time period that heavily involved a kind of, uh, oh, wow, we can use CGI to depict, you know, the the sort of occult wars of kind of late Catholic and early Protestant literature, right? Like, this is also the era of Van Helsing, which is like, you know, I have a boomerang that's got holy water on it that can fly around on a remote control or whatever it is that Van Helsing can do, right? Like, the this is the sort of like, hey, man, you know what is the coolest thing that we should really make into a high-tech movie special effect the holy hand grenade of antioch right uh, but but the, the really what i'm thinking about here is that this whole oeuvre this whole sort of body of work and and i think we can now drill back down to hellboy specifically is invested with this notion of what we've internalized uh, what who we are because of what we've internalized and matt was already talking about this uh hellboy is who he is because of the aspects of his nature that he is internalized and can't get away from. And then uh, the aspects of his nurture that he's internalized and can't get away from. And he has to grow up in a sense that he has to kind of learn to live with these things. And, uh, and he's a demon. What, what would, and he's a demon in the sense that that's, that's like, that's a symbol for how it feels like nominally to be like an adolescent who feels like a social outcast, right? Like that's kind of the, the gist is, oh, we're all freaks. This is like the breakfast club, right? This is like, uh, oh, we're all we're all kind of outcasts in this high school. And now we're out of high school and we're on to St. Elmo's fire. But like Demi Moore left to go to rehab. Right. And like and I miss her that this is like uh, this is definitely a sort of brat pack kind of uh, kind of story. And so Hellboy being a demon what he, and, his, and his horns being shorn off is really about him in the sort of what is if that's the metaphor, right? If that's the sort of the I forget which one it is. That's the vehicle, right? The tenor is, you know, your own internalized sexuality and desires and kind of socialization around around uh, kind of impulse and impulse control and, and getting what you want and social relationships, which uh, and they sort of urges you don't understand that you confront an adolescence. And these things are kind of identified with demonic things, right? The sort of your relationship with yourself in yourself is involved with demons in the world. And if we were even to bring a contemporary sheet onto it, we could say that, you know, Hellboy being who he is has a certain and of course he's Catholic has a certain amount of historical guilt about where about the the power that he was born into. Oh, man, I'm a demon. I really don't feel good about being born a demon. Uh, What could I possibly do to for anybody to like me? I'm the monster. Right. This is a thing you hear over and over again in stories from this time period. Oh, I'm the monster, you know, and 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 uh, and, and nowadays it's sort of like you're the monster. Right. <laughs> they were much less into me being the monster and much more into you being the monster. But in that particular cultural moment, it was like I'm the monster. And uh, so Hellboy being the monster is 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 him sort of internalizing his sort of socialization, which he can't control. And it's a broad symbol of this and of this adolescent experience of alienation and kind of rage at his situation. And what the relics of the saints are is the is a countervailing symbol that might represent a different sort of internalization. Right. Um, That that it is, in fact, possible to internalize good things in the same way that you internalize being a demon. Right. So, like, for some reason, I think in the in the particular cultural vocabulary I feel part of, it is easier to think of myself as a monster than as a saint. Right. It's sort of like, oh, you know, if you think about the good things that are associated with the occult and religion in contemporary society, uh, that's seen as silly. But the bad things that are associated with the occult and religion in contemporary society feel very comfortable. Right. Um, and, and I think that's just sort of a product of of uh, a variety of different factors we don't necessarily need to get into. But I feel like in Hellboy giving, you know, when they give Abe Fishman, when they give the the shape of water guy, right, proto shape of water guy, the relic of the saint to protect Excuse him when he has me. to confront the monster. Excuse me. That is disrespectful, Pete, to, to <laughs> oh, fish people. Address him by his proper name, Commander <laughs> Saru. <laughs> okay, his I thought he was Abraham, uh, yeah. Abraham Sapiens, right? Because he's Abe Lincoln. 
um, because he's, hey, Blinken. But like it's the idea of like you could also internalize the idea that you're a holy warrior. You know, you could and it's not it's no not necessarily any less real than you being a demon. right? Like it's it's uh, it's kind of two sides of the same coin. It's the idea that I am not sort of capable in the scope of being a human being of fully comprehending the goodness or badness of my actions. And the sort of Catholic approach to it is to externalize this in symbol and to sort of inter and sort of relate to the mystery of it through the expression of the symbols that the culture offers to provide a context for understanding it. Right. And and so it might be like demons. There's the demon in you. There's the demon in me. Saints. There's a saint in you. There's the saint in me. Collectively, as a culture, we might have a parade where we carry the saint on our backs and the saint weighs 2000 pounds. And that's symbolic about what it means to try to be good. Right. And so, like, to me, it seems like what what when you're talking about, like, holy relics in movies like this, you're talking about uh, taking whatever it is about being a hero and doing and being the not in a hero in the sense of saving the day, right? Not in the sense of like Diomedes throwing a stone on top of somebody's head and like his deeds echo in eternity. No, I mean like a hero who saves the day, which you certainly don't feel like you're good enough to be, because that's sort of fiction. Nobody's really that good. Uh, and the symbol of the relic of the saint is to say, yeah, but there's there's this idea that a person in a moment. Right. That there's a there's a notion there's like there's like this yearning or 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 echo or kind of spiritual resonance or there's something about this idea that you could save the day that you can make manifest in a symbol that will be meaningful to you and reinforce to you what you're doing and why. Right. And it gives you the courage to go out there and fight whatever it is that you need to fight. And it protects you because the, it protects you from the despair that you're going to fail. And it reminds you of the possibility that you might succeed. And this manifests as a magical power of invincibility, which is a little bit different. But I don't know, Matt, what do you think about all that stuff? I think uh, just I'd, I'd put it in a slightly different way. As the poet says, I used to be a little boy, so old at my shoes. And what I choose is my choice. What's a boy supposed to do? The killer in me is the killer killer in you. you. My love, I send this smile over to you. That's the the chorus from Disarm by uh, the Smashing Pumpkins. I'm getting chills because that's brilliant, man. This is a very <laughs> smashing. This is a very smashing pumpkins movie. Yep. Because uh, today is the greatest day I've ever known. Right. It's, it's the sort of uh, when he finally gets to hug somebody for Christ's sake. Right. Like it's it's like oh wow I got I got a hug. That's all I wanted. Right. And and the, and the sort of bloom of fire that comes from the sort of consummation of this act of physical intimacy. Yeah, man. Wow. <laughs> I mean, so do you want to drill into that a little bit? Because there's a couple of levels going on with that quote that you just brought up. <laughs> With uh, with Siamese Dream, well, you yeah. know, I haven't, uh, you know, obviously, having done the TFT podcast with Ryan for so long, I always pop these things up on on Genius, and uh, um, uh, Genius tells me that Billy Corgan's rage and anger were inherited from his parents. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that the the transmission of that information to you has been automated. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, oh, I mean, it's uh, it, you know, I don't know. It's interesting. This, this is a song. This is the song that's like, hey, is this a song about abortion and like cut that little child, which is the line that got this song kind of banned from things. Um, that like, uh, or is it like condoning child abuse or glorifying or glamorizing child abuse or some or something like this? But like, it, it, this is a song about about sort of coming to terms with your patrimony a little bit, right? And that that yeah. like, uh, as you, you know, sort of as you grow, it's yeah. I mean, it's so it's so interesting. I, I, my shrink in my twenties said something interesting to me, where I was like, uh, I was arguing with her about like, well, no, not in reality, not in reality, not in reality. And she, Emmanuel, counted me, and she said, "Well, look, as a shrink, I'm not such a fan of uh, uh, capital R reality because any reality that's out there, you experience, and the experience is subject to interpretation, right? <laughs> you right, know, right. and that, that's that's where there's that's where there's room for that's where there's room for the kind of growth or the kind of like recontextualization or the kind of development that that you're um 
that 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 Pete that you're talking about, right? That that like whatever the the experience is, the experience is a thing that that is subjective that can be uh, recontextualized, and that actually by sort of this is something this is a frequent topic of the overthinking of podcast. Sort of by changing the narrative, you can change a lot about the actual lived experience. You can change a lot about the sort of material seeming, but not actual, not actually material, quote unquote reality, um, reality of a situation. And just take the the weird urges uh, that you have in in adolescence, right? Like they're only you know they're only bad to the extent that you're taught to be ashamed of them right like you have to you have to learn to manage them you can't act on I mean they're every... yeah they're bad cuz they're potentially destructive but like yeah, yeah but, but, addition, but yeah. sure but you i mean i guess they're potentially destructive they're also potentially fantastic you know right. and like uh, let's take it let's take it to something that's a, a a lot easier not to moralize right like uh your voice cracking as your voice changes as a, as a boy in adolescence right the it's uh it's potentially embarrassing right um but you have to learn to sort of negotiate it you have to uh, both in the sense that you kind of just have to hold on through the bad period and then <laughs> yeah. and then kind of relearn what your voice is like as an adult now of course it's not I, in an in an environment uh in a discursive environment that is really focused properly i think now on on sexual violence and toxic masculinity and sexism and uh you know gendered privilege like like, uh, yes, it's it's hard not to sort of want to jump to want to jump to how destructive sort of unchecked uh, sexual urges can be. But like t- to a certain extent, I wish we could evacuate that discourse out of a, a kind of abstract idea of like um, of the urge and then the kind of the interpretation of the urge or kind of an experience, a physical experience, a sensory experience, right? Um, An internal experience. And then the kind of the narrative that uh, the narrative that, that comes, comes around to uh, that, you know, that comes around to kind of make it mean something to you. And like, to the extent that like you're in control of your own meaning making, um, you know, to, to, to that extent you, you become more, uh, to that extent you become more adult, right? Like, yeah, you can't act on every sexual urge you have, but the, the sexual urges don't make you a bad person. And in fact, are like something that enriches your life. And, you know, and when properly contextualized, those things have a, a fantastic effect on your life. So, uh, you know, when, when, when acted on in, uh, a proper, in a, a proper and sort of, I don't know, well socialized uh, sort of way. It strikes me that like in, in a lot of religions, reading the scripture isn't enough, right? There's a sermon, you know, or there's a homily or there's a Dharma talk or there's a, there's a something, right? Like, because the, though, though the capital R reality, uh, if, if you think of, of the spiritual truths in various kinds of religious scripture as a reality, the capital R reality doesn't change. It has to be experienced, you know, and it, it has to be, um, restated for the particular uh for the particular time and place you know and that like um that that's the part uh i mean that's that's why we have a podcast frankly uh you know anyway let's uh let's let's maybe let's maybe move on mark pete and i have have held the floor for a little while um anything else occurred to you about hellboy yeah, let's talk about the symbology or the lack thereof his, of his hand, right? It's it's uh it's from notable... jerking off, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it might just be that, right? But let's it's notable because um it's not often that we see asymmetrical character design in terms of physicality, right? Uh, I mean, yeah. the horns are notably symmetrical, but these one of his hands is enormous. And made of stone, and the other one is not. It's just like red flesh. Um, and and notably, you know, at, at at the end, we see that the hand is actually one of the keys to unlock the portal, and yada yada, bring about the end of the, end of the world. Um, but what else is going on there? There's got to be some more there. Oh, though, yeah. right? well, Aside from the masturbation thing. 
<laughs> well, because what they that it's 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 the whole thing writ large, the whole sort of stated theme of the movie writ large, which is that uh, that Rasputin tells Hellboy that his hand is the way that it is in order for it to be the key to this door that's going to bring the eldritch horror into the world. And Hellboy, of course, no, in his own experience, owns his hand for his own purpose. And is that the hand that he catches the crucifix with or catches the rosary with with the cross on it as well? Or is it he catch that in the other hand? I'm trying to remember. he catches it in the flesh hand. Yeah. So so um, but Hellboy. So the whole this whole idea throughout the movie that gets repeated is is that. You know, you you were destined to be one thing. You were designed to be one thing. You're choosing to be another thing. Which one is real? And when I think about the asymmetry of Hellboy's hands, uh, it's sort of like, well, the the sort of team nature thinks that it's for this particular purpose. But the way that Hellboy actually uses it, what makes me think of is the uh, the scene in the subway fight, the fight with the monster in the subway, which I absolutely love, which is Hellboy's take on hard boiled, <laughs> where he's fighting the what is it oh what is it Balliol or whatever is spicy handed god of kittens yes the spice exactly where he's he's holding in his stone hand he is fighting the bad guy he's like he's using the stone hand to swing the monster around and around but in his flesh hand he is like tenderly cradling a crate of kittens oh that's good Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah and so he has these two sides to his personality it's that okay well you designed me to have this one hand that i can use for this one specific purpose and you didn't even think about the rest of me but for me I manifest this as me having a, a dual nature of being both able to be violent and also able to be tender and, and affectionate. And Hellboy's fondness for kittens in this movie is a lovely piece of character development. I would anticipate it's probably true in the new movie, too. I haven't seen it, obviously. But, uh, I mean, I can't imagine that they would not have uh, Harbour, uh, is that his name, have him not have a bunch of kittens. I feel like the, the fans on the internets would have loved that. If it's not in there, I know why the movie bombed. But, yeah, but this that Hellboy is somebody... He's similar to the char- a character we bring up a lot. Uh, Hellboy is a is a riff on a character we bring up a lot, which is that he's a riff on the John Wayne from The Searchers that we keep talking about in terms of the person who's outside society who then protects the existence of society and has to sort of reveal a certain hypocrisy in society because of the sort of area outside of society can't uh, function in the same way that the rules, uh, you know, I live in a society that has walls, and those walls are guarded by men with guns. Who's going to guard them? You? Right? This is the sort of Jack Nicholson argument from A Few Good Men. But Hellboy isn't just that. He's both. He's both outside, and he also wants to be inside. He's not entirely outside the threshold. He's got one hand in his pocket, and the other one swinging a squid monster. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very 90s movie for something made in 2004. I guess it's because it's based on comic books that are from earlier. But, uh, I mean, man, that's smashing. And it it feels uh, of a piece with Men in Black as well, which is a 90s movie. That's true. That's true. The whole idea that, like, the occult and aliens and all this stuff that was kind of on the fringe and and you would see it through. The idea that a a composited image of a fish man would be on the cover of News of the World at the grocery store checkout counter, right? Like the sort of bat boy kind of thing. Like, you know, oh, man, there's a fuzzy picture of a UFO on a fake newspaper. It might be real. Oh, now we have computer generated imagery that we can composite with you know real film let's make it look real this was sort of a moment a high moment in kind of milking that particular visual vocabulary i mean it's post x-files is what it is um in in the sense of realizing all that but yeah i mean i don't know matt what did you think of hellboy and his big stone fist it's for jerking off Pete. <laughs> <laughs> It's calloused. Uh, it's it's uh, well used. You know, it's uh, musculature developed and 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 calloused. It's a well, no, no. It it got that way because he committed the terrible Catholic sin of masturbation. <laughs> I mean, sin, it's also the sin, a, a, the sin of Onan. He spilled it on the ground. Look, as long as he don't spill it on the ground, just saying. It's also a tribute to Hellboy's relationship with Ma Grimm's ever loving thing. <laughs> I think right because there's a lot of the there's a lot of. Uh, Ben Grimm, the from the Fantastic Four in Hellboy, as the sort of rock guy who thinks he's a monster and is like trying to get along with a woman and he can't make it work and he's kind of down on himself and he's he's not what he wants to be. There's definitely a lot of of that guy in in uh, Hellboy and quite a lot of clobbering as well. It definitely, so. I feel like as a '90s movie and as a movie in the lineage of of the X Files, um, it really gives lie to a lot of the sanctimony around the X Files because the X Files really was. 
a you know old white guy in a smoke filled room around a like a mahogany conference table you know to really you know conducting a, a robber's rules of order style meeting about secretly running the world and that's yeah. and and it's interesting i i had a friend you know an older kind of like radical uh friend who i saw the the x-files movie uh with in the 90s or early 2000s he was like you see you see that's how they that's how they hide it from you it's not uh it, it, there's no smoke-filled room with a lot of white guys around this is the underlying operations of capital the system is built to work this way but by redirecting your outrage at an imaginary smoke-filled room um anyway if if there were a conspiracy of smoking guys uh st- stood in here by um uh by uh, George Bluth, who's um, <laughs> right, like who even smokes, who even gives uh, Hellboy some some advice on how to light a cigar. Yeah, uh, right. He's completely unequal to the task of controlling the secret forces which are supposed to be under his command. Right. Right. He's it's uh, like a like a father of an adolescent, really. Like you you can like sort of try to coax the teenagers into doing something. But really, you can't guarantee outcomes. You can't you can't uh, guarantee specific performance. Right. By the by the teenagers. It's it's going to be six to five and pick them on any given day, whether they're going to follow orders um, or, you know, do the thing that you do the thing that you want them to do. And I. I do like that it kind of deflates somewhat the shadowy cabal uh, the, of the FBI um, and, and does it a little bit with like the with a pathetic drop from like there is no paranormal division of the FBI cut to, you know, subtitle paranormal <laughs> division of the FBI. Right? right. And then also just with like no one listens to Jeffrey Tambor. No one, you know, yeah. no. And, and and all the 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 fish guy, the Hellboy guy, like uh, they just do what they want anyway. Right, right. The idea that the power that the cabal has is not in the sense to cover up what they are doing, but to kind of cover up what what is sort of happening at large that is outside of anyone's control and that they derive power and authority from being the gatekeeper of this truth to everybody else. Uh, is interesting. I yeah, think and it, it, uh... I mean, also, if you have, you know, if if you have specialists in violence who who you use to your particular ends, like a sort of para, like a paranormal paramilitary, right? right? A para para, <laughs> um, a, a paranormal paramilitary parappa the rappa, the uh... <laughs> getting better, getting worse. <laughs> <laughs> you have you you also need a command and control structure that guarantees that the specialists in violence are going to you know not stage a coup or something like that and and there's completely completely without that right like and that's um yeah that's pretty fun i mean it's it's sort of pretty funny to me and it does uh it does it does do the conspiracy stuff and like the the cosmological conspiracy is i mean it's an interesting thing and we're nearing the end of our time now but like cosmological conspiracy movies are are an interesting genre because i think they kind of they they reflect a, a um a wish for for meaning, a wish for like a coherent narrative, and in a movie that's kind of about a psychological narrative of the self and and choice and autonomy and and uh, free will, uh, the the it it would be a topic to go into, but but alas, we should probably save it for we should save it for another time. Um, but like that that it gives lie to the to the the smoky room thing is is a good aspect of this film for me. I like to think that when Agent Coulson brings on new agents of Shield, he has a mandatory training video where they watch Jeffrey Tambor in, in the first Hellboy movie, and then it pauses and it's like, what should he have done in this situation? Right? Like a like not gone on the television station to talk about Hellboy, right? Like B made sure to secure all his documents in his top desk drawer and lock it, right? Like C, right? Uh, you know, follow the command and control structure to report any uh, excursions of power 
paranormal assets into the open, or D, all of the above. Right? Like- <laughs> I mean, this actually this is actually a, a plot point on on Agents of Shield, which is that you know if you have a whole bunch of of superpower people, the the Inhumans, right? Like they can kind of do what they want, you know. And it's it's more it's kind of more an exercise in in leadership rather than management because you have to lead through influence rather than through uh, uh, through coercion, you know, and that's um, uh, it's, it's a, a lesson that that I guess Jeffrey Tambor by the end learns. You know, what he really wants is is pro tips about using a wooden match to light your stogie. Right, you know, because that's because that's all goes back to this idea that the thing that leads Hellboy towards saving the day is his interaction with his kind of hedonistic impulses and personal pleasures. Yeah, absolutely. and that's why he's an antihero yeah, rather than a hero because cigars are attractive to him. We, we bring it, we bring it, uh, we bring it full circle, and and sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Okay, this has been the Overthinking It podcast. Thanks very much for listening, and thanks to Pete and Mark for podcasting with me. Thank you also to our members who support us by throwing us a couple bucks, a little uh, contribution to keep the lights on around here. We appreciate it, and we show our appreciation by uh, giving you some extra content, some extra podcast stuff that you can download in the members area. So if uh, supporting Overthinking It with some cash, uh, five bucks a month was not worth it to you just for the warm and fuzzy feeling you get inside. Well, if you like this podcast, there's more where this came uh, came from. Uh, for example, we occasionally record the question of the week. It used to be a feature of the podcast, but it started taking over the podcast, and so now we, we make it its own little thing. This week, we recorded a question of the week about the Star Wars trailer uh, that dropped recently. The question was, what even is a Star War? No. Uh, the, question, <laughs> <laughs> the question was, guys, I think we need to stop and take stock. What is Star Wars actually Actually, about and uh, in the question of the week, we answered that in uh, in ways that were uh, both profound and kind of frivolous and funny. So, uh, if you are interested in that, you don't have it already in the members area. Go to overthinkingit.com/slash/join, become a member, uh, and get that and so much more. Thank you to our members. We'll be back next week with more Overthinking It podcasts. Until then, visit us on the web at Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve.